we're really only capturing about 5% of the innovation that we could actually see if we could break open who is included in STEM and actually encourage and welcome more people into STEM and have them persist and stay longer. The innovation that would be possible would blow all of our minds. Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I'm your host and chief goddess of the PASS Foundation, Annalise Corbin. We know the current model for education is obsolete. It was designed to create fleets of assembly line workers, not the thinkers and problem solvers needed today. We've seen the innovations that are possible within education, and it's our goal to leave the box behind and reimagine what education can look like in your own backyard. Welcome to today's episode of Learning in Box. As always, super excited about the conversations we get to have about um, innovations that are taking place around the world in education. And joining us today is Dr. Mandy McCormick-Smith, who is PASS Foundation's Director of Research. And Mandy's work um, spans across the K-12 and the intersections between K-12 and post-secondary through teacher preparation, um, as well as the intersections of um, science and technology um, in the world of K-12. So Mandy, welcome to the program. Thank you for inviting me. So today, what I'm super, super excited to talk about actually is a project that PAST has been super fortunate to be able to engage in. And just to set a little bit of stage, um, we are talking about this notion of STEM identity. And we will get into the weeds about what we mean by that. But I think for the purposes of context for our listeners, there's been a lot of conversation and debate, honestly, over the last decade or so, this is not new, about this idea of a leaky pipeline. As it relates to how folks find their way um, into STEM fields. We all know um, the lack of diversity and opportunity in STEM careers is a big old giant hairy audacious global problem. And oftentimes um, the difficulties in this space are how do we even get into that career option, much less um, persist once we get into the pathway that gets us there. And part of that conversation historically has been about this thing called the leaky pipeline, which is very real, um, which is tied to the idea that once you get into a career pathway, whether it be, you know, direct into the workforce or through post-secondary of some description, that unfortunately what happens is a, a large percentage of folks start to trickle out, thus the leak. Um, and while that's all true, especially as it relates to women and underrepresented um, minorities that that um, we really desperately need to have as part of the STEM ecosystem, what we know is that although the leaky pipeline is in fact a real phenomenon, the problem happens much, much sooner. Thus, the work that PASS Foundation has been very fortunate um, to receive um, three-year funding opportunity and grant from Battelle Memorial Institute to really take on this idea of STEM identity in the K-12 space to figure out exactly what it is, how we define it, and what can we collectively do about it. And that brings us to the conversation with Mandy. So Mandy, first and foremost, let's start with the highest level. What what the heck is this thing called STEM identity and why should we care about it? 
Well, so as we know, we all have multiple identities. Um, and so we have our social identities, we have our personal identities, we have our familial identities. Um, but this whole idea of STEM identity is how one can fit, how one fits or sees themselves with fitting into this STEM ecosystem. And as we define STEM identity, we look at five different constructs of how we can support that through the work that we do in school with kids um, or just in our everyday lives of working with kids in our summer programs and our after school programs. We have this amazing opportunity to look at the different parts of what makes up a positive or person's identity in these different facets and really have an impact on them. So as we are thinking about STEM identity here at the PAST Foundation, we have been examining it um, alongside some prior work, but um, we've been looking at five different constructs of STEM identity. And so within that, we look at STEM performances or how students are performing and what they consider their STEM classrooms. And so we can talk about each of these a little bit later, but um, also within, we look at how a student self-identifies and their self-recognition, how they see themselves. And we know that teachers and families and communities actually play a large role in how a young person sees themselves fitting into a role or into a space. There's external recognition that we focus on as well. Do my teachers see me as someone who has math knowledges? Do my teachers see me as someone who has technology knowledges? Is that what my family recognizes about me? Is that what my community, my neighborhood recognizes? So there's the external. Um, we also look at STEM performances. And so how um, I can't feel very competent or I don't really have a STEM identity if I've never given an opportunity to work in a lab or a makerspace or create something or design a design something and then have it 3D printed. So a lot of this also comes back to opportunity and this space to really get in and have that those STEM performances. And they don't have to be these grand STEM performances where we are um, seeing these beautiful robots being constructed. These are everyday STEM performances. These are design cycles. These are getting comfortable with failure. These are celebrating failure and saying, let's go back and re reiterate this again. Um, so that goes along in STEM performances. And then the last construct that we're looking at for um, our bigger picture, I guess, of STEM identity are... Um, ways of seeing and being in STEM. And that's how you kind of move through your everyday life, right? Um, appreciating the technology that it takes to put on this podcast is one example. But if I am taking my third graders out for a field trip and we are focusing on uh, we're focusing on something not STEM related. Maybe I'm thinking that this is a trip to the library, right? And I'm focusing on these ELA standards. Well, the walk to the library, we can also practice our STEM ways of seeing and being in the world. We can appreciate what the different nature things that we are seeing. We can appreciate um, even the way that we open the doors in the library. Just bringing simple attention to some of these things in everyday ways goes a long way to help identity formation, particularly with our youngest learners. And I know I've focused a lot on the youngest learners because I think that, and we know the data tells us that if we don't hit particular, particular at-risk groups, like we know that if we don't hit girls by middle school, 
our chances of getting them into interested in STEM and persisting in STEM, our chances are so much less reduced. They're statistically significantly downhill, right? So if we can notice where these points are, these intersections where we really have to capture particular groups of kids and we can get them before that happens and really build up these STEM identity um, constructs, right? And identity is, it's not stable. It shifts over time. And so we have to keep remembering that, you know, just one trip to the library where we focus on the nature and notice the sounds as we're walking there is not enough. We need to practice these things every day and they evolve. Um, But identity, and as they evolve, we also have to focus on the identity formation for adolescents because that looks developmentally different than identity formation for young children. We also can look at identity form, positive identity formation for teachers. Um, Oftentimes, if you ask elementary school teachers if they feel comfortable teaching STEM topics, um, they they often do not. And so how can we also build their STEM identities so that they feel comfortable leading their classrooms and the kids in their community to have more positive STEM identities? Right. So it's a complex topic, right? There's a lot of moving parts. And I think that sometimes folks get caught up in some of the things that they have been historically hearing, right? Or that they are seeing in media trying to think about or address these pieces. So I kind of want to acknowledge those because it's super important, right? So I think we probably all are, or at least folks um, who are in the U.S. um, in particular, uh, our listeners come all over the world. So I do want to set that context. Um, We have a series of ads that have been running probably, I don't know, for a couple of years now um, that are sort of picking up on, you know, some of the concepts that we've been talking about across the sort of K-12 and post-secondary spectrum as it relates to STEM for a number of years, this idea that you can't be what you can't see. And the ad campaign really sort of um, dials in on that a little bit more and says, you know, you can't be her if you can't see her, right? Really trying to get to this notion of the women in a whole host of professions and just trying to sort of help and work on the identity components. And I think that's a step forward, right? Because we're putting it into mainstream popular media, but there's a missing component that I would argue that we have to address at that same time. And it's not just that you can't be what you can't see. You also can't do what you don't know. And that knowing piece in my mind, in my mind, is key as it relates to STEM identity or any other um, identity focuses that you want to take, because it's all about the opportunity to have experiences and because we build via experience. So how, how do you think about that? I, I, I think about it very similarly. I think that um, the identity, we can't support positive identity formation in STEM or any durable or lasting STEM identity unless we have opportunities to be to engage in those spaces, those maker spaces, or have have those classrooms that really encourage design thinking, and that we have to have students engaged in the practices of STEM in order for success to be later, um, and in order for that persistence to take place. So I agree that we have this optics issue. Um, 
But in order for true persistence within a STEM field, and we know that women and other minoritized and underrepresented groups have a whole host of other things to combat once they are in these fields that go beyond the performance of the actual um, or knowledge of the content. Um, And so how can we really prepare individuals to persist in these ways um, more than just being seen, but being seen and being successful and also redefining that? We right now, if we think about our STEM fields and who is is actually um, able to contribute to our STEM fields and what our ideas of innovation are right now, we're really only capturing about 5% of the innovation that we could actually see if we could break open who is included in STEM and actually encourage and welcome more people into STEM and have them persist and stay longer. The innovation that would be possible would blow all of our minds. Absolutely. I mean, I, I've talked about this, you know, for years at past that, you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, kids are far more creative than adults, in part because we do not have the same set of constraints. You know, it doesn't matter that kids will come up with an idea that the physics of the world, right, have never overcome to be able to actually put that solution into play, doesn't make any difference. There's elements of the solution, even one that is beyond the reach of technological or metaphysical, you know, or take your pick understandings, right? The reality is within that creativity or the process of creativity, there's a nugget there that might lead to the next great innovation because kids are creative in ways that adults who who um, bracket, if you will, their creativity based on what they know can and cannot be done or the, the flip side of that is based on what we have and have not always Um, done or the the methods in which we have taken care of that thing historically, right? And we are missing incredible opportunities. And the same can be held true by not having a great enough diversity of thinkers trying to tackle those problems. And, And therein lies the great need, right? And so we do know that if we can get students into the pathway towards those STEM careers, to your point, it's a battle at every step for many individuals along that trajectory. And we do, in fact, have folks that drop off, they drop out, they don't persist um, for a whole host of reasons. Um, But that the issue really comes far before um, the choice around sort of career trajectory, whether that's post-secondary or otherwise. So I'm curious, Mandy, so this this is a great research topic. But what are the what are the nuts and bolts about the way we are at past? And granted, this is this is a conversation about a project that we are taking on, but but it's a it's one that is so critical to us as an organization that we have taken it and made it the baseline through which all programmatic decision making moving forward is happening um, in this organization. So it's not it's not, um, it's not something to be discounted. And so I'm really, really curious, could you talk with us a little bit about the components? So how are we actually going to get at 
the, the five pillars you laid out and the research tied to it, we are actually have tangible things that we are doing so that we can learn along the way. What are those things? Sure. So we have a STEM identity instrument that we have been using, um, and it is modified off of another STEM identity instrument um, that was put out by the University of Connecticut um, and a colleague of mine named Ted Cam- or Todd Campbell. Um, but we modified this to actually fit the needs of what our students needed here in Central Ohio and um, what we were doing with our programming. And actually, I just had a great conversation with one of our education team members yesterday um, looking at, so within our STEM identity instrument, all the five constructs, there are about there are about four to five items, four to six items for each one. And so we look at that, we look at those four to six items to give us an overall idea of how that person is thinking about their STEM performances, how this individual is thinking about how, so they might have very high on their STEM performances, but then we look at their external recognition scores and see that maybe they're not they're not feeling like their teachers see themselves as such, right? So this gives us an excellent opportunity to partner with that school district. Um, And so we had this conversation yesterday. Um, Well, let's get them on the phone and let's say this is the pattern that we're seeing. And we really have some suggestions for how just in every day in your classrooms, some simple changes can help to bolster this external recognition that we see your students struggling with. So, so that's, let's, stop, let's yeah. stop right there. I want to dig into that a little bit. Yeah. So what might some of those suggestions be? Because, you know, I'm imagining, you know, educators are sitting here listening to this and like, well, I don't know what my data shows, but that's okay. If there's something I can do that no matter what my data shows is going to actually improve this for my students, well, give, give me an example of something. Sure. So um, looking at the external recognition and just showing different ways that you, so one of the questions on our instrument is, do my teachers come to me with questions about technology? Right. And so depending on the developmental age of the students that you're working with, these particular students were in middle school. Um, and we we should all know by now that the the children know far more about more. technology than the rest of us. So we should just yeah. we should just ask them. But that it turns out, and it's linked to prior research. It is an excellent way when adults come to a student and say, "Could you help me with this? Could you help me with this technology?" Um, and hearing that again and again. But if you get those repeated messages, and this is a message for school wide, right? This doesn't. This does not go to the STEM teachers. We tell everybody, um, you know, your English teachers still need technology help. Go. You are all STEM teachers. <laughs> I want to stop right there. That's the other problem here, right? That is true. That is true. And so, right? yes, um, that is also, that is absolutely true. Um, it is on every teacher and every administrator to work on building up these identities of the kids. But having anyone in the building come up and say, hey, can you help me with this technology problem? It's a very simple way. Even if you know how to solve that technology problem, you know, ask a kid. 
Um, there are some other ways of external recognition, um, looking at what kind of programmatic things you can do within your building to celebrate STEM successes, um, having different STEM newsletters. Also, to that point that you just made, highlighting STEM competence, what we would consider STEM competencies in other classrooms. So how do we actually, in an art class, regularly say, this is STEM? and call it that much. Because we also have to change the way that we're talking about STEM. Um, and I am guilty of it just a minute ago, right? Like talking about the ELA teacher. How can we also recognize the what we label as STEM is happening all day long? Because it is. And so those are changes that we can help schools, schools with. Um, and we have that capacity. And so these PDs are not for the STEM teachers. They're for everybody. They're for the whole building. Um, so those, that's just one example of how we can use this data to then make changes. And then we can look at the data again and say, oh, look, our students actually are scoring better on their external recognition. This made a difference. Um, and so the data, the instrument itself allows us to break that down into actionable points where we're seeing some um, where we're seeing that we could need some support. Right, right. And I think it's interesting, you know, as part of this conversation and the journey, if you will, is tied to it. And, and coming back to this notion of the labeling of our classrooms, we can't really underscore that, right? Because the reality is, and there's, there's, you know, folks who know me know I collect the acronyms, right? Because they're insane for starters, right? We, and early on in this whole STEM or STEAM or whatever debate, and it doesn't matter what you call it, right? Whatever your, your district, your institution, whatever your passion lies in it, so be it. That's not really the point. The, the point is that, um, you know, STEM is in everything. It's in a poem. It's, it's in art. It's in science. It's in math. It's, you know, there are so many letters that we've left off the table where it lives, right, that it would just become the alphabet soup. And I've collected some of them. They're insane, like I said. But the point of, of that is, and the reason why I think it's so critically important that we spend just a moment sort of focusing on that concept is because it gets back in my mind to the opportunity and honestly, the equity and in inequities, if you will, around the way we compartmentalize um, kids and their potential, if we're not really careful, right? Because the reality is STEM is... STEM is based in the humanities, right? And I get a lot of push on that, but, but you know, sort of my, my, my sort of um, premise here is that, you know, we cannot be fully formed humans if we don't have a meaningful and deliberate interconnectedness to our entire world. And that's technology, that's the environment, that's the arts, that's the humanities, that's the beauty of what it means to be human and interact on a global scale. So if we think about it that way, then it boils down to how do we craft opportunities um, for students to explore broadly, to figure out who and what they are, what they want to be, and where their passions lie. Um, and so I do like the notion that there's an instrument that we can work with, create, modify, take your pick, that will ultimately help an individual classroom teacher figure out no matter what they teach, that I can make adjustments that will change the lives of the students in my classroom. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not, these are not, 
um, you know, we often, we know that teachers are under fire and coming out of this pandemic and the world has been on their shoulders um, and they are working so hard. And what's beautiful about the instrument is that it's not a major overhaul. It's not this, you know, these are small things that every day um, the data shows us make a big difference in the lives of children. Um, and of course, it'll take us a couple of decades to get at that persistent data, right, and see how this plays out. But at the same time, we know that these are the, these are the underlying facets of what it is to be a good educator in general, it's they're really good reminders that to be to have a child focused classroom and a child centered classroom, and so it does bring it back to the child and it brings it back to um, really bolstering those interests. Um, and unfortunately, until we can break down some of that compartmentalization, like we're going to go to math at one thirty right, here, right, you know, right, right. Um, we're going to keep batting up against that problem. And so we do as a society have to figure out a better way to, yes, we do have to have certain benchmarks and we do have to have certain assessments so that we know that we are that students are keeping up and they are learning and progressing as they need to but how do we take that and lay and define it in a way that shows how students are successful in all of these ways and how those ways are connected instead of separate lines on a spreadsheet well and the other thing and this is one of the things i love about this work and why it for me personally it's so meaningful is that you know, these are small tweaks, right? We do know that education and teachers have been under fire. There's so many things that are happening in the world. It's a really, really tough space. And we are losing really great educators because they just don't want to put up with it in many ways and many places. And yet what we know is what you're talking about, those small things that we can do, they actually, when implemented, lessen the burden on the teacher while at the same time opening the opportunity and the experience for the student to engage in ways that are meaningful, relevant and culturally and locally derived for the student, right? Because the flip side of all of this and the piece that we haven't really um, talked about yet is student engagement, right? And the reality is that we lose students along the way because we process them to death to some extent, right? Because we, we have lived for many decades under the myth um, that the myth that we have to have everything so planned out and so rote. And this idea also, and I know this gets controversial and you feel free, push on me if you want, Mandy. But, you know, one size does not fit all. Not all children are the same, right? And some of our, at least in the U.S. and other parts of the world, some of the sort of federal mandates that were, um, you know, very generously, um, I would say, um, intended at the outset to ensure that we could create a very robust and equitable public education system for all children, you know, in our country. But we know that is not the reality of what happened. Did that happen? Was it deliberate? I'm going to let somebody else debate some of those pieces. But if we stepped back from that, what 
it, what I think that we can all recognize is that one size does not fit all, nor is it serving our students in the best way possible. And what we see is that when you step back and figure out what do the kids care about, what's relevant to them, what are the constraints, the opportunities, the environments, um, the burdens, the happinesses, the joys that these our students bring bring to the classroom with them. And if we can find ways to engage that student in meaningful learning, whatever that sort of ecosystem of their world is, it, it, it's not that it goes away or it disappears, but it becomes white noise in the moment of learning something meaningful and deeply. Yes, absolutely. And as I think about the way that you just explained that, Annalise, um, I, I had two images in my in my head here. So I, I think that, you know, for a while, um, our educational system, and, and we can unfortunately still go into schools and know that this is, this is the uh, perception in some places where there are, there's silence in the hallways. Students walk um, in single file ways, like they don't speak to each other. Um, we have adulted the kids out of the building and where some places where um, we all know that there are administrators or teachers that, you know, if you are if your classroom is neat with their rows and all the kids are sitting in their rows and they're quiet, then that is the sign of education, right? Um, or that is the sign of learning. And that is absolutely not the sign of learning. That is the sign that of an adult-controlled classroom. And there's really nothing child-centered in that image as it we have adulted them out of the room. And so what we really do need to do is have that creative piece and recognize all of the wondrous joys and ideas and creativity and burdens and everything that they are bringing to the classroom and us as the teachers welcome that chaos because that chaos is their learning. Um, and that's, and that is where we as adults also need to key in because we have, that has been adulted out of us, right? We need to key into their chaos and learn from them how to re-engage or reconnect with that part of ourselves. Right. Right. A hundred percent. And, you know, the other thing, too, that I want to make sure that we take a minute to talk about, because we've really focused in on sort of the K-12 component of this project that we have. But we know that that is not enough. We could do this entire project and only focus on this idea of STEM identity within the K-12 experience. But it's not enough. Right. It is absolutely not enough. And we started with this notion of a leaky pipeline. Um, and how it translates into early career or post-secondary. But I want to step back even one more time from that and say, we know that's happening. We, we, we know the work that has to happen in K-12, but there is a post-secondary responsibility here as it relates to STEM identity in younger students. I want to talk just for a minute about what post-secondary can do, what meaningful ways, and, and I'm not talking about colleges of education. I'm talking about the university systems as a whole. Every single discipline, every single discipline at every university around the world has the opportunity to play a meaningful role in changing this paradigm. 
what what might that look like? I mean, that's a big, hairy, audacious question, I guess, that I'm question. throwing at you. But the reality of it is when I'm checking back and thinking about it, you know, you've got all these undergraduate students, right? You've got all these graduate students. You've got all this faculty with these incredible, varied sort of and sundry levels of experience and content knowledge. And they could do something about this problem as it relates to ensuring that younger kids are competent they see, feel, and be, you know, like folks that they could identify with, and they get to have meaningful hands-on or applied experiences with content experts. So how do we address that from a culture of post-secondary and change that dynamic? And maybe we can't answer this today, but it's super important to me. I, I honestly, that is a big, hairy question, and I don't have an answer for it at large, but what kind, what slightly comes to mind is our university systems do often have large and well-developed service learning programs, particularly in our schools of engineering and our arts and sciences. Um, we have these great service learning opportunities, but we're not always using them right in our own backyards. And so how could we possibly um, expand that and so that um, we are using that more in our own locality, right? And we're using it at a, at a rate that's not just this one week a year in May when the semester ends, how do we interweave this throughout the year so that students are exposed to more of these lab experiences or experts are in K-12 classrooms more? As if I were to think about um, undergraduate students, I also think that them partnering with younger students would also be self-affirming to them and help help strengthen their own STEM identity, their own self-recognition, as I think about that instrument. Um, so I think it would be a win-win. In terms of how we get the university system on board for that, that's a bigger problem. Yeah, bigger problem. But, you know, I love that idea, right? And I guess for me, just as I wrap this sort of the reason I asked the question up is, I think there's this, this odd um, paradigm, if you will, as it relates to this idea of who can and should teach, right? And I think that's part of the problem, right? If every undergraduate student had to take a course on, from the perspective of the service learning component is a great way to tackle this, right? On, on how, you, how you teach, Right, not formal pedagogy, but how do you, Mandy Smith, who is studying chemistry as an undergraduate student, right? How do you craft and think about the stuff that you love, you're getting your degree in, and share it with somebody younger than you? That near peer mentoring or the mentoring processes that rolls around, but it has to be scaffolded, right? Because we can throw kids into service learning and say, hey, go go share this great opportunity, you know, with other kids, and it could be an absolute fly over in a mist because nobody's bothered to help me know how to communicate the thing I love or I'm passionate about in such a way that somebody else can be part of that joy with me. Right. And for me, that's the essence of teaching. Mm -hmm. I, I, I've never thought about it in that way. But as I'm thinking about that, 
and your question, we often have these like introductory classes for freshmen, right? What if that, what if there is this introductory class that focuses on what it means to teach. How do you share? How do you craft? And actually, our college students these days, with all of their social media aptitude and skills, they are good at telling stories. How do they tell their story so that it's impactful, right? How? What does it mean to be a mentor? What does it mean to be a... Um, community leader. So if what if we developed college courses on that? Um, I could think that that would be a really impactful semester um, or examination. And then that work is carried out through the next several years during their college experience. Um, I would have loved to have had that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, it's really funny because, you know, to take this whole conversation full circle as we wrap up, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, you know, STEM identity is about getting getting folks into that pipeline to the point that, A, they stay and they actually enter the workforce in whatever vein or capacity that happens to be. And whether that's the journeyman plumber um, or that is, you know, the incredible studio artist or it is, you know, a chemistry professor down the road all and anything and everything in between, right? Um, but the reality of that is if we can't figure out how to change not just the conversation, but the ultimate outcomes, we will continue to find that the world itself is overtaking us. And I don't mean other other countries, other groups. I'm not talking about test scores. I'm, I'm literally talking about the earth saying you, you can't. You're not even sustaining yourselves, much less the ecosystem that is the air, the water, the land, right? Um, you know, and we're not going to be able ultimately to solve those big, hairy, audacious problems. And so we have to be able to find a meaningful way to make STEM identity a primary actionable initiative. And so I guess as we sort of wind this conversation up, Mandy, I'm really curious about, so what happens next? So we are just on the verge of finishing the first year of this initiative. And so what what is that sort of next thing that you would say um, as, you know, somebody listening to this podcast, wanting to go out and and get, I'm sure, get their hands on the tool, but also more importantly, um, be able to take some of those action steps. What, what, what is that going to look like for us as a next step in terms of the way we're having the conversation and thinking about STEM identity moving forward? So I think our immediate next steps, um, and as we've looked and at the data here and we've shared with our education team, it's how how can we make our camps better? How can we make our our offerings better? How are we actually capturing student interest? So we've already put some of these things into action. We will be making some pivots. We'll be making some changes based on the data that we have. And hopefully we'll be able to look at our data in next summer and see that these changes um, led to increased showings or positive identity identity. STEM identity correlations, right? Um, 
in terms of what that looks like later down the road, I think STEM identity for has been evolving slowly. I think where I see STEM identity moving next is we really need to also look at how humans form identities alongside what we are now calling a STEM identity. Because as we talked about earlier, this isn't STEM, this is life, right? This this touches every area of life. And so how can we connect these two disparate bodies of literature between how um, one forms an identity and that obviously changes over time to varying on your developmental stage so that we can really understand how to better support these identities over a person's lifetime. Um, So that's where I really see this work going. I think that we will have some great insights about how this can be used in preschool, in middle school, elementary, high, for mid-career, right? Because we haven't even gotten to that point. We've, we've, in our conversation today, um, you know, we've gotten, we've talked about getting people into these uh, careers, but how do then we also think about how do we keep people in these careers? And I think that's also something that we need to start looking at. Um, Going back to what you had said about that the world will just keep taking over, right? Um, For me, this really gets back to how we care for each other um, and how we care for each other. This is our humanity. Um, It's not a STEM identity instrument. It's a connection. Um, Yeah, I actually love that. Um, And on that note, I thank you so much for taking time um, out of your day to have this conversation with us about STEM identity. And we look forward actually to seeing um, more of this and, you know, sort of what comes next. So thank you for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.